we've been talking about what happened from the cross to the throne. And we've been picking out significant uh, issues and happenings in the life of Jesus as he is making his way into Jerusalem through what has been called Passion Week and uh, ultimately to the cross, being buried for three days and three nights, rising from the dead. And we're also going to touch on the ascension because very few people ever teach or preach on the ascension. And uh, we, we don't really have a, a lot of understanding, I think, as to why the ascension was important and uh, what that means for us. And so uh, we're going to uh, touch on that as well. So what happened? What happened from the cross to the throne? And tonight I'm going to be dealing with, out of Luke 22, if you want to go ahead and find your way there, Luke 22, beginning with verse 39, um, we're going to be talking about what happened in the garden. What happened in the garden? We're talking about the garden of Gethsemane. We're going to get there in just a moment. And as you're finding Luke's gospel, chapter 22, I just want to make mention, those of you that uh, keep track uh, of Facebook legacy, or some of you are connected to me as well on Facebook. If you're not on Facebook, I realize that there are inherent dangers in technology, and I understand all of that and respect people's opinion. But I also know that we've got to penetrate the culture. And there are 500 million people on Facebook. Do you realize there's more people on Facebook than there are in America? And I know for some, I was talking to Dot. I'll put Dot on the spot. Is Dot here? Yeah, there's Dot. Dot called me or emailed me the other day. She said, Pastor, I'm getting on Facebook. Help me. And, uh, and so bless your heart, Dot. Someone had to help me too. So uh, I'm the same way. I am technologically impaired. And, uh, and I think we got Dot up and going now. And it, and it happened. Well, you see, that's when it comes. Now, in spiritual things, imitate me. In technological things, that might not be good advice, So, but I'm glad you got there. So we got Dot up and running on Facebook, and so now she can feel again like she's in the loop. Um, if you're not on there, again, I respect the reasons why people may not choose to do that, but it's a wonderful way to stay connected. They have all sorts of security settings, and you can block people, and they don't know it. And so uh, it, it gives you a sense of empowerment. There's a sense of empowerment where you said, where you can push a button and said, hide all posts from this person. There's just a sense of empowerment. Isn't that just kind of, that's just kind of something, isn't it, Bill? That's just something there. Anyway, um, for those of you that keep track, though, you've noticed I've posted in these last few weeks, and I'll be honest with you, I almost avoided it. I almost didn't jump into the fray. Um, I almost didn't say anything about it because I figured most of the folks in the congregation probably aren't even aware of a great big uh, a sort of theological stir in the body of Christ. Until about two weeks ago, I had someone stop me in the foyer and ask me about it. And then I had someone email me and ask me about it. And I thought, well, statistically, if I have a couple families asking me about it, then it probably is better known than I'm giving the folks credit for. And it may not be something you're interested in. And I can assure you that if you avoid reading about it, you'll do yourself a favor. But, uh, for me, when I see certain error and certain leavening begin to take place within the church at large, sometimes it just has to be spoken and has to be taught about and has to be addressed. You understand Jesus said that a little leaven can mess up the whole, the whole loaf. And there are leavening effects that can take place in the body of Christ in, in local churches. And, and so we want to do our best, of course, to be uh, receiving 
and accepting. We certainly want to be open to God's word. And, and I am under no uh, personal delusion that, that there are things in this book that I've never heard or perhaps don't know or have the fullness of revelation on. And so I'm certainly open to more instruction and understanding uh, because I, I just, you know, I'm not God and you aren't, you aren't either. And if the Lord penned this book, it's objective truth, but that doesn't mean I, I've got everything. And so uh, I'm a learner too. Having said that, there are certain things we do know. Is that not right? I mean, there's certain things we know and it's settled and, and uh, that's just how it works. Well, well, there's, a, there's a, a, a stir and the new stir in the body of Christ, which probably started some, a couple years ago, is universalism has become trendy again. And universalism, if you'll allow me to define it, is simply this. Anybody can stamp your ticket to heaven and you'll make it. That's basically universalism. Universalism says Jesus can stamp it. Buddha can stamp it. Muhammad can stamp it. The tree can stamp it. Yeah, anything can stamp it. You can stamp it. Because when it's all said and done, everybody gets to go to heaven. Isn't that great? That would be. That, that would be incredible if it were true. If it were true. And so there's a new book out. And before I, I get into that real quickly, and if I don't get to all the garden tonight, you know, there's next Wednesday night if Jesus tarries. Jesus doesn't tarry. We'll have all knowledge anyway. So it, it, it won't matter whether you hear all of it. Um, I used to also be somewhat um, shy, if you can believe that. I used to be somewhat... Uh, hesitant or reticent to ever say any any name out loud. I, I was always careful about that. You should you should be careful, I think. And so a lot of times I deal with subjects and error and we never put a name to it. But I've been convicted as of late. And, and again, I think you have to be sensitive to it and you have to be careful about it and, and, and you have to do it in a right spirit. But I started thinking about Paul and there were times, you know, Paul named names. Didn't he? How would you like to be Alexander or Hymenaeus? And, and, and for all eternity, you're written in Scripture that said Satan used you. How would you like that? I'm not sure I would particularly like that. He named names when he would speak to the churches and he said, receive these and, and, and don't receive these. And he named them. He named Demas. In fact, he really gave the life of Demas on several things. He said, Demas had accompanied me. And then he said, Demas isn't with me. And then it says, Demas, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. How would you like to be Demas? And forever and eternity to be written in the scripture like that. And so, you know, Paul wasn't naming everybody. And I know he had other challenges and adversaries and issues that he was facing. But there were times that he felt like it was needful in order to make sure everyone understood that there was no ambiguity, that, that you couldn't get snagged, that as well-meaning as I may be by giving people the benefit of the doubt and not saying names, that there comes a moment you realize sometimes people can't connect all the dots and you just got to get black and white in their life and say, this is how we're going to connect the dots here. And, and so there's a brand new book that came out March the 15th, I was told, uh, by a mega pastor by the name of Rob Bell, and it's called Love Wins. And it's basically a trendy new book on universalism. Now, I'm not here tonight to give you the review on Rob Bell's book. You can either Google it or you can get a Facebook account and go to Pastor Baird's page and you can link from there. Or go to the Legacy page and you can go to the blog site and you can get information there. 
as well. The reason I mention this, though, is because historically, you see this, it comes every now and then around the block. Universalism comes back around. And I tell you why universalism always comes back around is because there's an inherent need in, in all of us, and particularly, I guess, ministers, there's this inherent need to be liked. It, wouldn't you agree it's better to be liked than disliked? I mean, if you had a choice and your choice was, I want to be loved or I want to be hated, which one would you take? Yeah. Well, what happens is, is we begin to develop our, our, our practice and we begin to develop our church life philosophies. And then we even begin to develop our preaching around the need. Paul wrote it as being a man pleaser. And he, of course, said, I'm not a man pleaser. Uh, I'm going to continue to speak the cross. And, and my opinion is, is that you see it all through history. It's just a circular thing that happens is that the church reaches the place where it begins to lose sight of of its responsibility to fidelity to the truth. You see, our job isn't I'm going to say this really, really because I realize what people do. We win people. We love people. We want people to be in the house of God, but do you understand that the, that the end, end game is not just getting people in a building. The end game is fidelity to truth that gets them into the kingdom. I'm, now, granted, they ought to come so we can get them to the kingdom, help them understand how that happens. Amen. But if you just get them to come and they don't know how to get into the kingdom, then we've done them no good. We may have filled up our barn, but it does us no good. You're following me. So our, our higher calling is fidelity to the truth and not just let's get them in, whatever it takes. Well, what happens is, is that because we want to please and because we don't want to alienate anybody. And, and of course, you've heard me talk about seeker-sensitive philosophy. And, uh, you know, I understand the intention behind it is let's take away all the things that could potentially alienate an unbeliever or a non-believer so they don't trip and are ensnared on other things that can keep them from hearing the gospel. And I agree with that. If we can, if we can take away things and pull down man-made, you know, barriers that keep them from the kingdom, amen, let's tear the man-made stuff down. But the problem is you can't tear the cross down. And the cross, by virtue of what it speaks and what it means, offends. That's what Paul said. He said to the Jews, it's a stumbling block. To the Greeks, it's foolishness. But to those of us who are being saved, he said, it is the power of God. But what happens is, and really it's, it's a... It's been a device the enemy has used all through the centuries is, is that he, he takes well intentions. And you heard, you've heard the old phrase, haven't you? That the road to hell is paved with what? Yeah, see, all those old things came from somewhere, didn't they? Sure, that's good intentions. I'm not questioning people's intentions. I'm sure they intend to try to bring people to the knowledge of the truth. But what happens is, is we begin to push Anything that alienates, anything that could potentially offend, anything that seems exclusive, anything that just, just seems like it's a barrier to people coming to the wonderful knowledge of the love of God, we just begin to push it aside. And what happens is, is where invariably it goes, is it goes to the place where the cross is put in the back room. It's put in the back room. Because if you, if you believe that anybody can stamp your ticket to heaven, if that's what you believe, 
then the cross was unnecessary. That's really what's being taught. Buddha can stamp your ticket, or if Muhammad can stamp it, or Allah, or if, 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 if the gods of Hinduism can stamp your ticket, if that, if really, it's just, we're all going to the same place, we're all just taking different paths to get there. If that's true, then what you've just said is the cross doesn't matter anymore. Doesn't matter. And folks, that's, that's the lie. That's the lie. And, and we, we can love people and uh, we can do our best to be relevant, to provide things as we try to do that captures people's attention, helps them see, hey, these may, folks may actually be somewhat normal. Um, we can do these things in order to speak truth, but you, you can't lose truth. Because that's the only thing that sets people free. So, there's this great controversy that's going on right now. This book that's out. And, and, and I, it's, it's, it's a marketing amazement because I suspect he'll sell millions of books. Probably become a gazillionaire off all of these books that are being written. But, but the key for a guy like me and for many pastors is, for many of you, you'd have never heard about it, probably picked up the book. Now, now maybe he got a few more sales. Maybe, maybe, maybe that'll take place. I encourage you to read reviews before you go spend money on it. I'm not spending any money on it because I'm not supporting an error. Um, but having said that, um, I think it is important that, that the moments we can, we, we, we begin. And we're living in that era where we're going to have to say that is error. That, that book and that author is error. Now, God loves them. I'm, I'm not, I'm not trying to be cantankerous. Listen, I'm not, people don't look at me and say, you're judging them. I'm not judging them. If you're saying the cross is of no effect and of no value, that's not judgment. You're wrong. See, that's, that's, but we've got to the place where suddenly if you were to mention that you're being judgmental or you're being intolerant or you're being, you know, uh, uh, harsh and hard. No, I'm not. It's the cross. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father, Jesus said, except by me. Now, that's Jesus. That's not Kevin. That's Jesus. I'm quoting Jesus. So Jesus was either a liar or he's the Lord. There is no middle ground. Don't you come and patronize me and tell me that he was a great philosopher. He was a good teacher. He was a nice guy, a compassionate man. We ought to model his life. Absolutely not. Jesus was either a lunatic or he was Lord. Because there ain't nothing in between. A guy that runs around and says, hey, if you've seen me, you've seen God. You'd commit me. Unless it was true. Think about that. Think about that. And so as we study the passion, as, we, as we, we're, we're, we're digging into this stuff. And last week I got to going on our rightful restoration. Jesus came to restore us to full sonship or daughtership and all that that means. But, but that doesn't happen unless we understand exactly the dynamics of what was taking place. All right? So, so when we're doing the What Happened series on Wednesday night, don't you for a moment think, oh man, I've heard this stuff all my life. I know the story. I know what happens. I mean, I, I, just, I could probably bug out on this one. I'm guaranteeing you, if 10,000 people will show up 
to Rob Bell's church to hear a message on universalism, there is a deep problem. A deep, deep problem in our churches. Okay? And still use the term evangelical, still use the term conservative, Bible-believing. There's a deep, deep problem. And so I want to suggest to you, just as pastor and I'm going to say this gently. Listen, I've preached the story more times than I can count. Every Easter comes up, Miss Louise, and I say to myself, how in the world am I going to preach Easter? Yeah. These people, some of you have been with me 14 years. Have mercy. How many ways can you say it in 14 years? And, and I, so I look at it and I say to myself, well, Lord, I believe it. It's important. It's the center of all you are. I mean, don't, I'm not in any way belittling it. I'm just saying, but how do, how do you keep saying something like that? I understand how that might come into your thinking. But I want to suggest this to you, that every Easter comes and something ignites again inside of me. Every Easter comes and God unveils something new to me. And I want to suggest to you that as we study these Wednesday nights, a little over a month until we get to Resurrection Sunday. I want to suggest to you on Wednesday night, there may be something here that will help you not only stay out of the ditch, but I believe will cause you to aspire to a new level of victory. Amen? Now, I know I haven't said one thing that you can fill a note in on on your paper. I, and some of you are sweating right now because you see those blanks on your paper and you're going, I got it, I got it. And if I leave you with blanks on that paper, you won't sleep tonight. So, all right, let's, let's get into it. Luke twenty two thirty nine. Let's read some things here. All right? So now you understand why we're doing this. Coming out in verse 39, he, meaning Jesus, went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. And we could finish it off by saying, then he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. All right, here we go. You get to fill in some blanks. Jesus came to this earth for two primary purposes. Two primary purposes. Number one, to provide atonement. Write the word atonement on your notes. If you want to know what atonement means, it means at one meant. To become one with God. At one minute, atonement had to be provided to be reconciled to God. Atonement for the sins of the world in order that we would not have to die in order to satisfy the justice of God's holiness. See, a part of the reason for the cross, see, a universalist will look at the cross and just tell you that it's a compelling, compassionate look at a sacrificial life that loved people. And at the end, when he was maligned and misunderstood and, and, and all that turned against him, he, he maintained his principles and he maintained his precepts and he sacrificed himself for all of these things. Listen, it, it's a compelling, compassionate, sacrificial story. But that wasn't the reason for the cross. The reason for the cross was that, that 
a holy God cannot stand in the presence of sin. A holy God, by His very nature, is repelled and alienated by sin that is in the world. And so something has to satisfy the justice equation because God's not just love and He's not just holiness, but God is justice too. And so because of the justice of God, and so the wrath of God could be withheld upon humanity or or, or upon those that would receive the substitute, Jesus became the offering. He took upon sin. He became, he became the death row inmate that you should have been and that I should have been. You say, well, I'm not that bad. Yes, you were. You were born that bad. See, that's our problem. None of us were born good. There's none righteous, the Scripture says. No, not one. So all of us need a Savior. You can't say, I don't need a Savior because I've never done anything wrong. Just by saying that, you're A, a liar. B, you're proud and arrogant. You lack humility. I can go down the list. So you see, now you need a Savior. So that's what He is. So, so He satisfied. Jesus satisfied. He was the substitute. That's why it's called the substitutionary theory of the atonement. He was the substitute for you and for me. So we did not have to die. And because He was the substitute and He became sin that we might be made the righteousness of God, the good news is that uh, we, this is number two, is that we can begin to live abundantly, function supernaturally, and journey victoriously. And I should have put down there as well, live eternally. So you just add that in there as well. Just put in your own little blank. The ability to live abundantly, function supernaturally, journey victoriously, and again, live eternally. Now, that's good news. The good news isn't that anybody can stamp your ticket. The good news is that there's only one way, and when you come to terms with Him... He provides satisfaction in order that you can stand before God righteously. Now, in order for both of these purposes to manifest in our life, it is crucial we get what's happening. Now, in the garden, oftentimes, I don't know if you've ever heard a message preached on the garden before. I don't know that I can recall ever hearing a message preached on the garden. You may have. That's wonderful. Um, I don't know that I have, and I'm doing it right now. And I think it's because, you know, we just whisk our way to the cross. We whisk our way to the resurrection. But the garden is very important, and most people don't understand the dynamics of it. Now, I actually pulled this off the Internet. I want to sing this so bad. But I know if I sing, I'll alienate both believers and non-believers. Some of you will remember this. You ever remember the old hymn, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses and the voice I hear falling on my ear. The Son of God says, disclose it. Then you know what the chorus is. And he, he talks with me and he I am His own. And the joy we share as we tarry there. None other has ever 
No. Now, I, we won't sing the last verse because nobody here knows that. But it says, the last verse is, I'd stay in the garden with him, though the night around me be falling. But he bids me go through the voice of woe. His voice to me is calling and he walks with me and talks with me. Now, it's interesting because you hear that hymn and we sing that hymn and it's amazing how that's been ingrained in our psyches for those of us that have grown up in, in church life. And it is extremely sentimental. But I want to share this with you. I would not want to go to the garden. Come on now. You, you want to go to the garden. I'm going to go to the garden. Now, I don't think anybody wants to go to the garden, but listen to me. It's necessary to get to the garden. I'm going to tell you why. See, many believe, including me, that Jesus was kneeling in the garden that I just mentioned to you there in Gethsemane. I believe that Jesus was kneeling, listen now, geographically in the place that millennium earlier was the Garden of Eden. Now, I, I personally believe that. Now, there's no way I can prove it, but I'll just share this with you. You can't disprove it. So we'll just believe I'm right. This is why this is why I just sort of had that picture and why I believe this is because what takes place here in the garden is the beginning of the reversal of what took place in the original garden. See, there was a cataclysmic event that happened in the Garden of Eden. That's when sin entered the world. That's when universal death and destruction took place. And, and all of a sudden, we find Jesus here in a garden right before he goes to the cross and ultimately the resurrection. And so what we remember is, is there was a first Adam who sinned, who, who allowed a, a death's door to be opened, allowed the curse of sin to come upon the globe. But now we find whom Paul will reference as the last Adam or the second Adam, Jesus, who is in a garden himself and things are beginning to be reversed. Now, I want you to remember again, there are two layers of interpreting these events. Remember what I said last week. We interpret the life of Jesus by understanding two things. That he uh, functioned out of his deity. That's, you can write that in there. Doesn't that feel good? He can function out of his deity and he also can function out of his humanity. And at times, as we look at his life, we've really got to understand what's happening. Because the garden without question underscores his humanity. The Jesus you see in the garden, you are seeing the humanity. I know he was 100% God and he was 100% man. I got the theology of it. But, but we're seeing manifest now that 100% or that aspect of him that was human. For instance, I'm going to go through just real quickly here some things. He had to get away to pray. That's what the scripture said. He had to get away to pray. Does God have to get away to pray? I'd, probably not. Probably not. He asked, the scripture says, for his closest disciples to come with him to support him. Now, does God need support? Well, no. Okay. It says that he was sorrowful and distressed. That's what the scripture says. Is God sorrowful and distressed? I don't think so. There was really a, a, a desire, seeming desire, to avoid what was ahead of him. I mean, his prayer was, is there some way that this cup can pass? That's what he prays, right? So there's something inside of him that's saying, I am getting this, but is there any way we could maybe get through this? And I know he quickly said, nevertheless, thy will, not my will. But, but would God have hesitancy? 
He needed, the Scripture says here, an angel to come and strengthen him. Does, does, does angels strengthen God? He had such stress levels, the Scripture said, it actually caused blood to seep from his forehead as the intensity. Some people believe that he was praying so, so hard he sweat drops of blood. I don't believe that was the case of all, at all. If you've never had stress of that magnitude, some of you have been under such stressful circumstances. I can tell you, I've been under such stressful circumstances before that, that literally you're just, your, your abdomen is just, it, we call it knotted. And your brow is furrowed. And, and there was a time I was under such stress, I'd have to pop an Ambien to go to sleep and it'd only give me four hours sleep before I'd, before I'd pop out of it and then I'd be wide awake. I mean, that, and, and what's happening to Jesus is the stress of the situation is culminating there in the garden. And, and I, I will get to this, maybe next week I'll have to get to it, but I want you to really think about it because I honestly believe that the reason Jesus walked as He did through all the events that took him to the cross. And think about how he walked through. The Scripture says that he uttered not a word. The Scripture says the crowd was hollering at him. He didn't try to defend himself. Think about all the ways Jesus walked with such stability through, through the events that took him to the cross. I honestly believe this. I believe that Jesus, listen to me, in his will, died in Gethsemane long before he got to the cross. See, I, he chose the will of God at that moment in Gethsemane. He embraced the fullness of all that that meant in Gethsemane to the point, I just want to throw this out to you because it just kind of leapt in me, to the point that could it have been that he already was manifesting the, the scars of the thorns on his very head? And you see, when you rise up from that moment, then, you, then all you're doing is once you've embraced it, I'm just, I'm just walking out what I've already embraced. Now, you think about that, all right? The whole picture that we see in the garden is that of a human being that's struggling. Now, again, I'll say it again. Jesus was 100% divine. He was 100% human. It, the incarnation is a mystery, Paul said. I don't always understand how those two things interacted in my Lord, but the Scripture says He was both God and man. But I can tell you in the garden, we see a very, very clear picture of a man. Now, the question is, as he's in the garden, why, why is it hard? Now, it's a silly question. You may be able to answer it. But the reason all of this was so hard and the reason all of this took place in the garden like it did was because it was at that moment that the full weight and the full reality of what substitution would be had finally dropped on him. You say, didn't he get it before then? He, I'm quite sure he did. You know, you may know that there's a reckoning day coming in your life. And for some of us, we may know that there's a reckoning coming, but as long as it's a few months out there, I'm cool. But there's, there's, there's something different when you know your reckoning's about 24 hours away. You know, you may be taken to court for some reason, and you know that your court date's out there several months, and you're good, you're fine, you're victorious, you're believing God, you're doing all the positive stuff you should be doing, but 24 hours before you go to that court meeting, something happens. And all of a sudden, the reality of substitution, the crisis, think about this, the crisis of the ages had come to bear upon him now in time. This was the moment that the sins of the world, all the sins 
from the creation to this point and all the sins that would forever be committed, the crisis of the ages come and, and fall upon him in Gethsemane. Suddenly, as Jesus is praying there, now again, I don't, I don't, I don't know that I can untangle all the intricacies of it, but, but at that moment, there was this, this acute revelation or awareness that he was to be sin. Jesus was to become the sin offering. This wasn't theory, folks. Remember what I said last week? This is reality. The picture of Jesus on a cross is not some theoretical doctrinal look that we just sort of antiseptically receive and it, and it has really no great uh, emotional uh, uh, passion related to it. I'm talking about God sent His Son and upon His Son, in reality, He cast the sins of the world. And it came upon Him, this awareness and the weight of it. I believe in Gethsemane. The rebellion of the millenniums were landing on Him. He who knew no sin, the Scripture tells us. He who knew no sin was about to become sin. I don't know any other way I can share that and make it any more oomph in your life. Alright? That's what's going on there in Gethsemane. Now why is that? Because he had to face the enemy on his own turf. He had to face the enemy on his own turf. For us to be restored, listen to me, things have to be reversed. For us to be restored, things have to be reversed. The first Adam, a human being, was deceived and he sinned. The second Adam, Jesus, was tempted, but he was discerning. And the second Adam embraced the truth. And the most overlooked aspect of the garden moment is that we have the prayer that Jesus prayed while he was there. I don't have the ability, I didn't plan on reading it all, but I would really encourage you in the next month to go to John chapter 17, that whole chapter, verse 1 through 26. And if you really want to know what should be labeled the Lord's Prayer, it's this one. I realize that's not the one we're taught. But this is really more of the Lord's Prayer because this prayer... If you'll look at the context of where John puts it within his gospel, this is the prayer Jesus prayed when he was in Gethsemane. If you want to know what was being said in Gethsemane, just read John 17, 1 through uh, 26. And as you begin to read through this prayer, I want you to begin to think about what was going on in the Garden of Eden with the first Adam, as the second Adam is now in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, seeking and praying to the Lord. Uh, those of you that can remember this, and for those of you that have been to Encounter, we may have played this on occasion. I don't think we play it every time. But uh, uh, what was his name who wrote The Passion of the Christ? Mel Mel Gibson. I almost said Mel Brooks again. I know it wasn't Mel Brooks. Uh, Mel Gibson. And he put, even with his Catholic understanding, he put some images in there that were interesting to me. Because at the beginning of the film... When Jesus is praying, you remember he's praying uh, there in Gethsemane at the beginning of the Passion of the Christ. And as soon as he's done and the thing takes off, the last thing that kind of makes you jolt before he leaves that clip is when he gets up uh, out of his prayer time, Jesus does, and the first thing he does is he stomps on the head of what? A snake. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he stomps on the head of a snake. Now that isn't in here. It isn't in the Bible. I understand that 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 is a, a theatrical happening. But don't you think that's interesting? That uh, Mel Gibson 
would have that, even though it's not in the Scripture, that there would be something that would put for all to see, for all that, that film was disseminated all over the globe, to see Jesus arise in that garden and stomp the head of the serpent. What happened in the first garden? There was no serpent stomping. What did they do? The serpent deceived them. He embraced them. They embraced him. But now the second Adam, basically, basically, prophetically, because he knows in the next few moments it will come into reality, he, 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 he crushes the head of the serpent. Now, there are seven aspects. I've only got four minutes and I'm going to stop and we'll have to come back to this next week because I got to tell you what all this means practically and I'm not going to get there tonight. So I'm just laying the foundation for next week because next week is when I leap and I tell you, well, that's a great, that's great understanding, Pastor, but what does that mean for me? It, it, it's an incredibly important thing for you, all right? But, but this is just like those old-time television serials where they're left hanging off the cliff. And all of a sudden it stops and it says, be here next week. But, I, but I'm going to go through these seven and you're going to have to write super fast, all right? So get your pens ready. If you're writing this down, the seven aspects of reversal that take place in Gethsemane that originated in Eden. Now, some of you, if, if, if you would really get your heart open, you'd begin to see what that means for you. But if you can't get it, I'll give it to you next week. Number one, the seven aspects of reversal. Number one, Jesus was on original territory. Gethsemane literally means olive garden. I don't know if how many of you know this. Do you know olives are fruit? Olives are fruit. I, you hear, I'm just telling you, the scripture doesn't say that Eve ate an apple and gave it to Adam. That's not what the Bible says. That's kind of what we made it to say, isn't it? She got an apple. She, she, she partook of the fruit. I believe, that, I believe that was olive trees. I'm just, you say, well... I've never heard that before. Well, there's a lot of things you haven't heard. That's why you're here. But I'm just saying that's a, it's a, he's in on original territory. Number two, God was dishonored in Eden, but Jesus prays that God would be glorified in Gethsemane. Now, again, I'm pulling this out of John 17. He was dishonored in Eden. Jesus prays that he'll be glorified as he prays in Gethsemane. I got to hurry. Number three. Death was loosed in Eden. But Jesus prays that eternal life would be released in Gethsemane. That's, that was his prayer. Now, I understand that happens at the cross. I got it. But he's praying these things. He's praying these things into the earth. Number four. The problem was started in Eden. But Jesus says his work is finished in Gethsemane. He literally prays that. He says, my work is finished problem started in Eden. The work was finished in Gethsemane. Number five, Satan was loosed and received dominion in Eden. Jesus bound and exposed the devil in Gethsemane. It's interesting that he literally prays. He said, I pray, I pray for those that are with me and those that will come after me, that you would protect them from the evil one. Satan was loosed and received dominion in Eden. Jesus bound and exposed the devil in Gethsemane. Number six, Humanity was made common in Eden. What I mean by that is, is that is that Adam and Eve were designed to live forever. I mean, that would be an uncommon human being. Amen. I mean, you are going to live forever. I mean, I understand if you know Jesus and you die and you get your glorified. I get. I, but I mean, just as a natural man or woman, we're not living forever. So we're common. 
but they were uncommon. And because of the sin, they became common. But then Jesus prays and he asked that they would be sanctified. He said, sanctify them through the truth. Thy word is truth, even as you sanctified me and set me apart. And I've taught you before that sanctification means to become uncommon. So he begins to pray in Gethsemane that the commonness that came upon humanity in Eden, I pray now that uncommonness would come upon them now. Now that's going to be a key point. Because do you understand that you and I, if we have opened up our hearts to Jesus, we're no longer common. This is, this is, this is the key point maybe of the whole deal. You and I are not like the world. In fact, he said of his disciples, he said they're in the world, but they're not of the world. We think that means that, you know, we don't, we don't just dress or, or do like the world. And, and it, has, it has some moral and ethical uh, imperative upon us. But that's not all that it means. It means if God is in me, I've been set apart. I function differently than the world functions. I have advantages that the world doesn't have. I have God in me. I have the gifts of the Spirit working in me. I, I have the ability, because God is in me, to, 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 to peer around the corner, to see into the future, to, 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 to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that I could ask or think, according to the power that works in me. I'm not common anymore. And our problem in the church is, we're trying to figure out how to live in the dirt with everyone else so we can be relevant and somehow, somehow, you know, you know, connect with them. The reason we're having trouble connecting at times is because I'm not common. And neither are you if you have received Jesus. Now that doesn't mean, we, again, we're alienating people. It's not we're trying to say, who, who are you? I mean, that's not what we're doing. The love of God compels us to look at people and say, you can be uncommon too. It's not me becoming like you. It's you becoming like me, who's in him. And number seven, alienation was the result of Eden. But Jesus prayed for unity and reconciliation in Gethsemane. I got to stop right here. I got to stop. Alienation was the result of Eden. We were alienated from God and we became alienated from each other. But Jesus prayed that as the Father and He are one, that we would become one. Why? So the world might know and believe. Now, now I just gave you seven aspects of reversal that, were, that was beginning to take place in the Garden of Gethsemane that, that was instituted in Eden. The problem was in Eden. The solution starts manifesting in Gethsemane. It is settled at the cross. And ultimately, victory comes through the resurrection. And so in many ways, really the souls of humanity was initially one in Gethsemane. It was here, I'll just say it again, and I'm stopping right here. It was here God's will was embraced. It was here God's plan came upon the, 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 the I don't know if the awareness is the right word, but somehow just this, the burden or the magnitude of it all fell on Jesus as he's praying in Gethsemane. And at that moment, he said, Yes, may this cup pass if it be possible, but nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. And at that moment, it was as if Jesus had arms the length of the globe and he grabbed it all. And at that moment, at that moment, the plan of God was sealed. I believe that. 
And the exaltation and the elevation and the power and all the other things we're going to eventually get to in the resurrection. Hear me now. It would have never happened if Gethsemane was not the place. Now, I'm going to leave you with this. And next week we're going to get real practical, but I got, I'm going to leave you with this. But listen to me. Everybody listen. Hear me. Last words. Kevin's done. Pastor's done. Listen, 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 listen. Until you get to your garden and you are broken to the place that you accept the plan and the will of God for your life, you will never be elevated. You will never be exalted. You'll never function in resurrection power. See, we, we, we want to get to resurrection power, but we want to dodge Gethsemane. Let's just dodge Gethsemane. Let's just dodge the cross. and Let's just dodge the scourging too. As long as we're dodging everything, let's just run straight to resurrection. Listen, he's not only the substitute, but he is the model. And we, when we understand that the model shows us that Gethsemane is the place where you settle it before God, that it's not about you, it's about him. It's that moment God says, I can entrust to you nation-shaking and world-shaking plans. i got to leave it at that. Stand with me.